Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic film. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... Uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, okay. yes, right. fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Yeah. Oh, so Directed good. by I... Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and it, there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission, So Say We All, The Complete Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and Nobody Does It Better, The Complete Oral History of James Bond and Spymania, all available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. See, I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. Like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our true. show. Being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. <laughs> you famously wrote that script in 12 days. On one level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody and sure. his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Next time on Star Trek, the next generation. Transport four immediately. Troy and her mother are kidnapped by the evil Ferengi. Your telepathic powers could bring us both great profit. And a devious plan could rob them of their telepathic abilities. Give her to me. Now, Riker is the only one who can stop their deadly experiment. We have to help her. Get away from her. On Star Trek, the next generation. This is Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter for the sci-fi television show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company in stores right now. And I'm Lisa Clink. 
I was a writer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager, and I currently have a short story out in the Star Trek Explorer magazine. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. In the early days of The Next Generation, Gene Roddenberry and company called upon many of the people who had written for the original series and the animated series, as well as other science fiction authors, to come in and pitch new stories for the show with the attempt to recapture the magic of the old series for the new one. A writer or writing team would come in and pitch several ideas for an episode in one meeting. Most of these ideas would be rejected for one reason or another, per the nature of pitching in general. But those lucky few would be developed into scripts, and that would eventually become episodes. Our guest on the show today was a publicist for the Star Trek animated series, as well as wrote the final episode of that series, The Counterclock Incident, and came back to The Next Generation to have writing credits on two episodes, including the one we're going to watch today, Menage à Troy. Fred Bronson is back in the briefing room. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me back, Peter and Lisa. It's great to see you guys again. You know, this episode is such a treat. Anytime Luxana Troy comes onto the show, it's it's <laughs> lovely. And of course, you had met uh, and, were, and were friends with Majel Barrett and Gene Roddenberry for many years. So I have to imagine that friendship influenced the uh, decision to write this episode. Uh, it did. It did. There's more to it, which I'll be glad to tell you. But yes, it did. As we get into the episode, of course, I, yeah. your head's in the right place here. I like it. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's get right on into it here. But first, let's go down the syndication sizzle reel for the show. We have in this episode, three sexual encounters, one trade negotiation with open bar, two mother-daughter conversations that end with basically, why don't you just do something with your life? One picnic, two Ferengi with an obsession with beta and telepathy, but apparently no conception of personal space. Two games of 3D chess, one transport that does the thing every teenage boy fantasized transporters would do, one acting ensign that once again does the thing that even an android can't manage, one Shakespearean love sonnet with a powerful meme potential to solve it all. Vulcan salutes have to go to Ethan Phillips for making his first appearance in the Star Trek universe prior to becoming a series regular as the role of Neelix on Voyager. Patrick Stewart for diving in headfirst into that final scene, and Majel Barrett reminding us that the people of Betazoid sure have a lot of fun. Warp 5 in 3, 2, 1, engage. All right, classic shot of the Enterprise D right here. I love it. Uh, so, Fred, talk to, walk us through this here. You came in, as I understand it, you pitched several episodes, including this one, and this was the one that was purchased. Where did the idea for the show first come from? Well, uh, I'll give you a little backstory. Uh, I actually pitched in season one, uh, not to Gene, but Gene uh, did arrange for me to go in and uh, talk to Robert Lewin, who was one of the producers year one. And I had a story, uh, I had several pitches, and he liked one, which was uh, we open on the ship and we only see female crew. And we soon realize there are no male crew. There's no male crew on board. And the women don't remember that there were male crew. And it was, it was a, you know, men, men and women story where the sexes are separated. And Robert said, well, we have a story where it's not the same story, but a, a matriarchy planet. And I don't think we can do both. However, I like yours. I'm going to fight for yours. But we all know he lost because Angel One got made. So I was out of luck season one. 
At that point, Susan and I, Susan Sackett and I decided to team up and write together. So this time Gene said, look, just pitch to me, because he was, Gene was obviously on top, but he wasn't taking the pitches. So pitch to me and I'll, I'll let you know if I like it or not. We had a story that's going to sound really cliched now, but I promise you when we wrote it, they had not done anything like it because uh, Rick Berman didn't want to do any time travel stories. Of course. Ironic because he ended up writing the first time travel story on <laughs> the second one. Anyway, uh, our story was a Starfleet historian from the future comes back to observe the TNG crew and accidentally causes the death of Picard. Wow. So they have to create a time loop. It sounds kind of, like I say, cliched now, but at the time, it wasn't. Gene liked it. He bought it. He, he paid us for the story. Nobody wanted to produce it. So we didn't couldn't sell it. And then Michael Piller came in, season three. And we thought, well, we got a shot again with that story. And Michael Piller said, no, I don't want to. I don't like that one. We're not going to do that. But you're welcome to come in and pitch. So Susan and I came up with a dozen, literally 12 ideas. We took Gene to lunch at El Torito Grill in Beverly Hills and said, we just want you to hear our ideas. We know we're not pitching to you, but we want to know what you like and what you don't like. And the 12th idea was another Mrs. Troy episode for season three, uh, since we'd already seen her, you know, earlier. And uh, Gene said, yeah, yeah, I like that. And he liked a few others. So we went into Michael Pillar and the whole writing staff and pitched all 12. And it wow. was, no, we don't like that. Uh, we're already doing that. We'll never do that. And we <laughs> literally went through 11 pitches and made no progress. And our last pitch was a story we based on the O. Henry short story, The Ransom of Red Chief, where kidnappers kidnap a little boy, but he's so horrible, they can't wait to give him back to his parents. Our idea was aliens kidnap Mrs. Troy, and she's so horrible, they can't wait to give her back. <laughs> uh, it, it grew from there, obviously. But uh, that was the original idea, the ransom of Mrs. Troy. Uh, we ended up, so we, we, we pitched and we didn't get a no. We got a, okay, well, that's interesting, maybe. And I don't know why I had the guts to say this, but I said, look, we all know there's going to be a Mrs. Troy story this year. And we think we have the best one. <laughs> I had no idea if we did or not. <laughs> and Michael Pillar said, well, you do. So, okay. Write the story. Wow. And we did and uh, turned it in five o'clock on a weekday, on a Monday. And when Susan, who was also, of course, as you know, Gene Roddenberry's assistant, when she came into work the next morning, there was a note on her desk from Michael to Gene saying, uh, we, are, we are buying the story uh, from Fred and Susan. We called it Peace of Mind, P-I-E-C-E, -E, as, you know. <laughs> and as we were writing it, they said, look, we really don't want to play on words in the title, so come up with another title. Susan and I went to dinner and came up with things like My Stepmother is a Ferengi and 
<laughs> all kinds of stupid things that were jokes. But we didn't come up with anything. Now we're driving home back to her house. And the, a phrase popped into my head, pod de de. And I said, two, no, it's really three. It's more, it's a menage a trois. It's a menage a trois. <laughs> that's how we got the title. Now that's obviously still a play on words. So uh, Susan went to Jean the next morning and said, hey, you know, we, we were asked to come up with a new title and we did and we really like it. Jean said, what is it? Menage a Troy. She said, yeah, I really like that. And Susan said, would you let Michael Piller know that you really like that? <laughs> Jean wrote a memo. Well, Susan typed it up. Jean wrote a memo to Michael Piller saying, we have a new title and he really likes it. And that's how we got a title that was still a play on words. <laughs> um, the process was that uh, we wrote the story. We were, you know, uh, and then... They gave us the go-ahead to write the script. Uh, the first thing we did was go in with two of the producers and write all the beats out on a whiteboard. And that took a day and a half. And then Michael Piller came in, read the whiteboard, turned to Susan and, and me and said, okay, write the script. So that's that's how it all came about. That's amazing. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you had uh, started first met Roddenberry or at least early interactions Roddenberry was as a publicist for the for the Quester tapes. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Well, if you don't count my my college interview with him, which I right, don't that that didn't lead to anything beyond I wrote an article for my college newspaper. Yeah. Uh and then uh I I I met him I I was working on conventions with B. Joe Trimble really early, early conventions in the early 70s. And Gene was a guest and Susan was assigned as his host and guide way before they ever worked together. And so I had met him, but I really got to know him as the publicist on Quest Store and setting up interviews and then and then on the animated Star Trek. And then in 74, uh, he was going to move from Warner Brothers, where he was doing the Spectre pilot, uh, back sort of Paramount and also home. And his assistant didn't want to leave Warner Brothers because he had seniority there. So Gene needed a new assistant. And I arranged for Susan to get an interview, and she got hired. So then I started going over to have lunch with them like every other week. Uh, for years, and that's how the friendship developed. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, just uh, so many projects that Roddenberry was working on in the seventies. Uh, you know, they they were filmed as pilots, and especially Questor. Like, it's like, as I understand it, there was sixteen or uh, thirteen scripts written for that show. And, and uh, which... I I know of uh, I know of four for sure. Yeah, they may have been commissioned, but I don't think all thirteen were actually written. Okay, and okay. I, I I've had copies of those scripts in my collection for years. So amazing! Yeah, it was given the green light, and then as we all know, uh, the the plug was pulled. Yeah, but I loved working on it. I loved working with Bob Foxworth and Mike Farrell. They were absolutely terrific to work with, and uh, of course, Major was in that as well. Yeah, and, yeah. So uh, many, so many projects that like. Yeah. Still, you know, hopefully uh, more info will come out for those as time goes on because sure. uh, 
they deserve to be preserved for, for posterity. Um, so by this time in the next generation, um, I presume that you had been a fan of the show. You were up on the show. You were aware of like the, the layout of the situation because all the characters in this really do uh, uh, are, are very true to form, you know. And, and um, so was this a, a weekly uh, weekly viewing party for you? Is watching? Oh, uh, absolutely. So even <laughs> even before when they were in, in their first meetings about it. Susan would tell me, all right, well, yeah, we have a captain. His name is Picard. He's not cast yet. Uh, we've got, you know, Dr. Crusher and her daughter, Leslie, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Deanna Troy. By the way, Susan's middle name is Deanna. That's where Deanna came from. And Jean's middle name is Wesley. So once they moved the character from a daughter to a son, he became Wesley Crusher. So I was hearing about all of this as they were having meetings and, and for, forming the show, creating the show. So I was already thinking of ideas, but yeah, absolutely watching every episode with the idea. Well, first of all, I was going to watch it anyway, but with the idea that I would like to write for the show. Yes, Captain. Other than your own episodes, which ones are your favorite from next generation? I have two. And again, they're like, like, Sitting on the Edge of Forever from the original. These are probably everybody's favorites, but my favorite is Yesterday's Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And my second favorite, and it's really close, is The Inner Light. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. I have a lot of favorites, but those those are the top two. I love Cause and Effect and uh, Mm -hmm. Remember Me and uh, a whole whole bunch of them. So who was in the writer's room when you were working on this episode? Well, that's a good question. Um, as I recall it, Ron Moore was already in there. Uh, Brandon was a Writers Guild intern mm-hmm. when I first met him. And I honestly don't remember if he was in the room at this point. I think he was. I remember six people being in the room. I think uh, Melinda Stonegrass. Um, and Michael, that would be four people. My memory, well, Hans, Hans Beamler mm-hmm. and his writing partner, I believe they were in the room as well. And they were the ones we wrestled the story to the ground with on the whiteboard. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was the whole writing staff was, was in on that meeting. I know later on, they didn't necessarily have everybody in every meeting, but they were all there. Michael was leading the meeting though. Absolutely. And this scene on uh, Beta Z here was filmed at the Huntington Library Botanical Gardens in uh, Little Ways South of Pasadena. Um, they also filmed the episode Justice there, which is where Wesley steps on the grass. Um, but uh, <laughs> And I've been there a few times. I'm sure, Lisa, you have too. And let me yes. tell you, it does not look like this. <laughs> <laughs> a few things were added in. Uh, when, we, when we first turned in the script, they told us we do not have a budget to go on location. And the next thing we knew, they were going on location. So we thought, well, somebody came up with some money. <laughs> it is it is quite close to uh, <laughs> to Paramount, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. But, oh, uh, uh, by the way, so freelance writers, Lisa, I don't know your experience of this. Freelance writers were not really welcome on set. Right. And I always thought that was because they didn't want you to say, that's not what I meant. 
So, not that we would have done that, but um, since this was our first episode, we were pretty excited, as you can imagine. So Susan said to Gene, you know, we really want to, he said, yeah, go, go. You can be there as much as you want. Yeah. So uh, we, we were on the set for all seven days of Menage à Troy. That's great. Yeah, it was fun. And obviously we needed his permission, but uh, we never we never once said, that's not what we meant. <laughs> <laughs> Good set etiquette there. Yeah. Yes. You got to love these costumes. I mean, Riker just looks very good, even though it's a yeah. bit of a pirate outfit. Yeah. <laughs> I miss loose fitting clothing. I, uh, I keep trying to tell people it's great, but everyone's like, no, it's not. <laughs> I think it's because of Star Trek. They're all are just wearing uh, Riker. It looks very comfortable. <laughs> he does. He does. And, you know, as we all know, pretty unusual to see him out of uniform. Of course. Any, yeah. Any of these people really have. Um, a typical Beta Z outfit. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, we asked Gene if he if we could two things. We asked him early on. Um, could we have uh, Loxana and Deanna be naked? Mm-hmm. And he said, "Why not?" <laughs> <laughs> and we asked. We we knew that he wanted to promote Wesley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he said, "Look, can we do it in our episode?" He said, "Yeah, you can." So that's how we got that final scene where he got promoted. That's great. It's a, it's a little bit ironic because at the time, um, if you talk to Will Whedon, he he talks about how he'd already decided to leave the show at the beginning of the third season due to a uh, disagreement with Rick Berman. Um, so you'd almost see this episode as like, oh, this is where he gets written off the show. But it's like, no, he actually gets promoted in the sixth round for a whole nother, whole nother season. Right, um, but it was, uh, a, it was a fake out with the Bradbury coming to take him away. You know, yes, we, exactly. we knew all along he was—he certainly wasn't leaving them. Exactly. Uh, oddly enough, as you know, I wrote it. Susan, and I wrote the game for season five. Yeah, and we wrote that as his going away episode. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but it didn't go into production for another year, and it ended up being his coming back episode. <laughs> I have to tell you, I, I love that episode. I think it's oh, fantastic. It, uh, it, uh, it kind of gets, uh, you know, shit on sometimes because of its uh, blatant porn allegories, but it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's fantastic. It's a really, really sharp episode. Thanks. Well, uh, I know we're talking, focusing on Menage à Troy, but do you want to know why the game didn't get made for a year after? Please, please tell us. Well, so uh, again, we pitched it. We got the go-ahead from Michael Peller to write a story. The story, we wrote the story, turned it in, and uh, the feedback was, "Well, yeah, but here, change this, this, and this, and give it back to us." So we did, and they said, "No, it's not quite it. So do this, this, and this, and give it back." So we did, and they said, "No, you guys just aren't getting it." They gave it to another writer. I don't know who. And they didn't like what that person did with it. So they gave it to another writer. And they didn't like what that person did with it. Mm-hmm. And Michael Poe put it in the dead file. Oh, dear. A year later, and we only found this out afterward, Rick, Rick Berman went to Michael and said, hey, whatever happened to that story about the game that Fred and Susan wrote? And Michael said, oh, it's in the dead file. And Rick said, no, I like that story. We're going to do it. 
So it got reactivated. But by that time, we were so separate from it that, and Brandon was now, you know, a new writer. And so Brandon wrote the script, which I thought was great, by the way. And it actually harked back to our very first draft. Yeah. And Brandon didn't know that. I mean, <laughs> but it just worked out that way. That it was pretty Amazing. close to our original concept. Well, talk to us a bit about the uh, the co-writing process. You, you worked with Susan on, on two scripts for this. And what was right. that writing process like for you both? Well, I would, we lived pretty, about five minutes apart from each other in Studio City, California at the time. Uh, neither of us lived there anymore. But uh, so I would go over to her house. She'd make lunch or dinner or bake cookies or do something. And, and we'd talk. We would just talk things out. And... Uh, again, we went in with like 12 ideas for Menage a Troy, so we did a lot of talking and a lot of writing down and making notes and changing things and, and developing stories. Uh, when it came time to actually write the episode, the script part of it, the story part we worked on together, writing the narrative story, but the script part, we divided it up. You know, you take this scene, I'll take that scene, and we'll each write and put it all together and that seemed to work. And it was pretty collaborative. I can't say that we ever argued, you know, uh, we might've had different opinions, but we, we definitely came to a consensus pretty easily about, well, let's do that. All right, but let's do this. It, it just worked really well. How long did you have to write a first draft? Uh, so 10 days. Yeah. I'm in Aja Troy, 10 days. And I was going to be out of town five of those days. Wow. A trip already, a work trip already planned. Wow. So we wrote it in five days. Wow. As, at least as you know, uh, Peter, as you know, uh, they had the right to come back and ask for one rewrite without additional pay. And they came back and said, um, it's fine the way it is. We don't need a rewrite. Now, did they rewrite it? Yes, they did. But a lot of it survived. A lot more than we ever thought would, you know, for, for a lot of first draft dialogue is in the final episode, but they definitely added things, you know, and, and we were fine with that. Uh, if, if you're going to write for television, as you know, it, you have to know it's a collaborative process and you're yeah. not going to turn something in and a hundred percent of that is going to show up on the screen. No, of course. So was it fun writing for Luxana? It was, it was, and I had known Major for some time at that point, so it was. And also, uh, I think maybe the most fun I ever had writing was writing the Shakespeare stuff for Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> we did, that That made it in from our original draft. It's, so, it's so great. I mean, how does it feel, though, for that moment? Because it's taken on a whole life just on internet memes and uh, GIFs and, and things like that, and it's like probably one of the most recognizable moments from Star Trek now. And uh, what does that feel like? Well, of course, at the time, we had no idea that would happen, right? But uh, just the fact, just to be able to watch Patrick, you know, in the in the finished show, doing our dialogue, it, it's, it's, it's hard to put it into words. It really is <laughs> a lot. I can imagine. I can imagine. Of course, Patrick Stewart first uh, started... 
because he on on Star Trek because he was in LA doing a series of lectures on Shakespeare and that's how uh, he was able to interview for the show um and Shakespeare does have a running through line throughout Star Trek which um, I imagine was a bit of of Patrick Stewart bringing his own experience to the show but also a bit of the writers like yourself saying like you know this guy says Shakespeare really really well so let's exactly let's we knew his that. background and we thought this is the perfect thing to do and yeah. and you know and how many times during the run of the series is he ever going to get to do this maybe just this once so yeah it, we had a lot of fun with it and you like that I've always admired was it fun writing the, Fer- the Ferengi as well it was you know they started off as, as you all remember being pretty evil, you know, yeah. in season one. And then they almost became comic relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this episode, we definitely wanted to do a comedy, but there's also, you know, some sinister stuff in this episode as well. Um, I'm just, as we're watching this, I'm just remembering my, my two contributions to canon are Robert April and Umox. Yes. <laughs> which I completely made up and and the word just popped into my head, Umax. I don't know where it came from, but you know, you're both writers, you know, you reach for a word and something shows up and it came into my head fully formed, Umax with a hyphen. <laughs> and then little did I know that would end up in almost every other Star Trek series. It's, it's so true and it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, definitely... Um, memorable <laughs> yes in its way <laughs> in, in its way in its way uh and yeah i would say too this is such a fascinating turning point for the ferengi as as characters because they are a threat here but you can see them becoming a bit more of a comic relief that they fully become in deep space nine i mean we definitely definitely pitch this as a comedy. Yep. Now, sometimes when I'm telling people who don't know about Star Trek, well, I wrote this episode, it was sort of a comedy, and the captain kidnaps Luxon and wants to ravage her. And they go, that's a comedy? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is something we've noticed before and we talked about on the show is how uh, Star Trek, even though scripts would sometimes be written with, with comedy in mind, it was never quite shot as comedies. And so it, it creates this impression that The Next Generation wasn't as funny as it was. And yet there's some hilarious episodes, some hilarious moments. And I think, as you said, this episode is very comical in its way, you know? And and um, and I, I, I hope people uh, can discover that humor as time goes on because this, this episode particularly, it's, it's, there's a farcical structure to it all. And it really peaks with Picard's uh, speech there at the end, and it's it's um, it's wonderful. Thank you. I my one of my favorite lines is almost a throwaway, really, but it was definitely meant as one of the more humorous moments in the show. And that's when in the teaser when Loxana is coming up to talk to Picard, and he wants to get away. He's oh, uh, I was just going to show right and Grax the uh, the new door mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> uh, here we go with Umox as we're watching it. Yeah. No sensors here, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and and definitely, you know, another uh, the instruction in the script was, you know, how she she pulls her hand away when she realizes that this is an erogenous zone for uh, yeah. 
<laughs> so, so somehow making the ravaging of Mrs. Troy a funny moment. Is extremely relaxed at the moment. Of course, Loxana Troy continues to appear throughout the run of Next Generation. Uh, they tried to bring her over to Deep Space Nine in uh, a fairly memorable episode. It's a good episode, but in the original show Bible, she's meant to be a recurring character, um, but never goes comes back beyond the one the one episode. And I, yeah, I think I part of the reason for that is just that the uh, the show itself was a little too dark. Like the Next Generation has a certain formality to it, which allows for her kind of disheveled self to, <laughs> to comically. Uh, uh, right you know, uh, throw a wrench into things. But with Deep Space Nine, the world itself was just kind of a bit darker, a bit disheveled by nature. So her presence um, probably wasn't the wasn't the success that they were hoping for. Good point. Yeah, it's true. Um, Even though it's a good episode. I, I really like her episode. And then Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah, Nine, yeah. But, no, me too. Um, and, you know, to have Majel connected to all the way going back to the cage. And, yeah, of course. And to yeah. be connected, you know, for as long as she was, was... Meant a lot to the fans. Yeah. Well, her last appearance, of course, was in uh, Star Trek 09. She was uh, had voice of the computer for one last time in, in that movie. Yeah. Diana and Commander Riker have disappeared. Hmm. It's always fun to see this again. <laughs> yeah. So at this stage of your career, Fred, where uh, were you spending most of your time working as uh, in the music industry? Or were you... Uh, Talk to us a bit about where you were at career-wise at this point. Sure. Um, well, what I I left, so I spent 12 years in publicity at NBC, and then I quit because I wanted to write full-time. I also had an opportunity to move to London, and that was the real motivation for quitting my job. Although after I quit it, I thought, am I crazy? I just left my job. Am I crazy? But I wanted to see if I could earn a living as a writer. And I, I was in... England just a little over a year. When I came back, we were talking about this, you know, before the podcast, things started falling out of the sky for me, writing jobs, uh, uh, an offer to work at Dick Clark Productions, an offer to write a book for, for Billboard. And that just led to a whole writing career. Um, I started writing TV at Dick Clark, which got me into the Writers Guild. And as a Writers Guild member, it was very easy to be able to go in and pitch uh, for Next Generation. You know, they, there was a process, as you all know, for non-Guild writers to submit, but then you go into a pile with 10,000 scripts and maybe you're Ron Moore and you get, you know, you submit the bonding and someone reads it and they love it and they, they produce it, but that's a one in 10,000 shot. Yeah, uh, I was lucky that being in the guild, I got to go in. So, but yes, uh, writing for Billboard magazine, being very involved with music, and then writing the American Music Awards and Dick Clark's New Year's Rock and Eve, and a lot of other shows at Dick Clark production. I would I would say most of my career has been music oriented. But I guess music and sci-fi, you know. Those <laughs> That's that's my life. Let me study her. Study her. What other shows do you like? What other sci-fi? Uh, good question. Uh, lately, um, Dark on mm -hmm. Netflix, the which Forbes magazine called the best time travel story ever. Yeah. Um, and Devs, the limited series on Hulu. Mm -hmm. uh, I enjoyed that a lot. 
Um, I know there's a lot more. Uh, of course, of course, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits, all all versions. Well, not all versions. <laughs> <laughs> the original Twilight Zone and the 80s Twilight Zone, I love. Right. And Outer Limits. Uh, the first batch of amazing stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Man in the High Castle. Oh, yeah, I, that was good. Absolutely, wasn't it? Yeah. I read the novel when I was 13. So I waited a really long time for somebody to film it, uh, but they did a, a really great job. So I, I love that. Um, I'm sure there's more I'll think of af- later. <laughs> Do you watch uh, For All Mankind? I haven't yet, and I absolutely want to. Oh, yeah, you'll love it. I, I Yeah, I, I was late to Apple TV, but I have it now. And I, of course, I had to watch Ted Lasso and Schmigadoon and... Uh, so I am. I know that's Ron Moore's show. I loved his Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so I'm definitely going to watch that, and I need to watch it soon. Oh, Rick and Morty. Yeah, I, I I just started watching Rick and Morty, and I don't know if you've seen it, but I love it. I highly recommend. It. It's you know half hour cartoon, mm-hmm. but it's really good. Make it so. No, no, no. I was just going to uh, say this is a solid bit of detective work uh, for Star Trek. Um, I'm sure it's always the conundrum when you're writing for Star Trek is how uh, there's a fine line between making the detective process of a show to science fiction that it almost feels alienating or not science fiction-y enough to where you're almost like, well, this is just a detective show from the 1950s. <laughs> and and uh, I think this episode hits that median very well, where you have Riker here doing the teching the tech sort of thing to uh, get the secret message out to the Enterprise. But then you also have the Enterprise itself heading in that right direction due to clues left on the planet's surface by, um, by the Ferengi. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I know what you mean, because there are some episodes of Star Trek and other series where I think there was no science fiction in there at all. Yeah, you know, it was mm-hmm. a, it was a murder mystery, or uh, you know, someone's on trial for murder, and uh, they weren't. They didn't always work for me. I, I want some elements, certainly, of you know, science fiction. And some episodes had a lot. Some episodes had a little. A few mm-hmm. had none. Yeah, you want your characters to be smart, but not like as you said, not alienating the audience by saying, how the hell did they come up with that? But you right. want your characters to be clever. As I'm sure this works. Yes. But if they're too omniscient, you know, it's a problem with Superman, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to have kryptonite or, you know, you've got to have people who can cause him harm or, or you know, why does he just pop in and, you know, use his powers and everything's done? Yeah. And there's no story. So we writers have to be clever about that and figure out how to how to introduce drama and conflict in and yes. Well, it's great with uh, with Star Trek and that it can actually hold lots of different genres within it. We were talking a little, you know, a bit earlier about comedy, you know, and yeah, murder mysteries and thrillers and horror stories and, you know, all kinds of all kinds of tales. Uh, as long as it has a bit of that that Star Trek bent to it. Exactly. I mean, I don't mind a murder mystery if it's done you know as a star trek episode mm-hmm. um but and and then also things like you know 
the deep psychological episodes. They, yeah. they aren't necessarily my favorite either, you know. Um, I want to know more about the characters. I want them to be real people. Uh, I want them developed and to be three-dimensional. But sometimes they would veer off in the wrong direction. But every series veers off in the wrong direction now and then. Yeah. When you're when you're making like Star Trek, did anywhere from twenty-two to twenty-nine episodes a year, you're going to have some great ones, and you're going to have some not so great ones. That's yeah. just, you know, what the old saying in TV was: we don't want it good, we want it Tuesday. <laughs> exactly. And they did it not only you know for one series, but you know overlapping series for many, 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 many years. That was a lot of work. And then also, I'm sure for both of you, you think, I don't want to write something they've already done. Exactly. You know? Uh, that, that, I, I think, I, I seem to remember for Voyager, that was the most common reason we would pass on stories is that it's been done. You know, third season, Next Generation, or fourth season, Deep Space Nine, or the animated series, or the novels, or the graphic novels, or something. Right. Uh, speaking of that, we all know that you know, so in counter-clock incident, they become too young to run the ship. And we all know that rascals happened on. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eric Stilwell, who was in the script department at Star Trek before he became Michael Pillar's assistant, said to Michael, you know, that was already done on the animated <laughs> series. And Michael said, oh, well, who wrote that one? And Eric said, well, Fred did. And Michael said, oh, good. He won't mind. <laughs> Meaning he won't sue us. Exactly. <laughs> if he ever wants to pitch again, he won't sue. Yes. He's those words, but that's what he meant, I'm sure. Yeah. And he was right. <laughs> yeah. Not that I would have a basis for a lawsuit anyway, nor would I ever even think of it. But it is uh, interesting how the animated series for many years was kind of loosely considered part of the Star Trek universe. And uh, the main reason for that, of course, is just that it was harder to find. Uh, it run in. In its first run, and then had uh, about a year of syndication after that. But then it had kind of fallen by the wayside, and uh, you know, so a lot of fans and even some of the creators behind the scenes were just like, "Well, that doesn't really count," which is, of course, <laughs> such a disservice to the show. It's a fantastic series, and it's it's been so great to see over the last 10, 15 years or so how the availability of it on DVD and then Blu-ray and now on Paramount Plus has allowed it to oh, yeah. uh, take its place as it totally deserves to be taken in, in the Star Trek universe. And to have this wonderful book out. Yes, of course. There you go. Uh, you know, Aaron and Rich. And uh, and and now to have more animated series yeah. with references to the original animated series and lower decks. And uh, yeah, I think I think it's finally getting its its due before yeah. realizing how, how good it was. And if people haven't watched it, they should probably watch it. I mean, you know, you asked me about my favorite episodes yesteryear. Is I would put in my top five of any Star Trek series. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I show it to people still who have never seen an animated episode. So, well, watch this one. Yeah, see what you think. Dorothy Fontana writing yes. some of the best Star Trek. Absolutely, absolutely. fantastic. Yeah. Do we have an agreement? I like this that she gets a Lothana gets a pretty serious moment when she volunteers to stay behind. I mean, not not humorous at all. No, I think it really gave her, you know, 
Although, uh, not that she didn't already have some depth, but she was such an anti-main character, you know, so bold, yeah. brassy, and, and out there. And here she is doing a very serious... Well, and structurally speaking, this is such a uh, mother-daughter story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, the, 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 the two characters who don't understand each other, you know, the mother who wants her daughter to be living her life more, the daughter who's very work-oriented and, you know, only cares about... Uh, the next mission and such such and such and yet these are now Luxana is literally saying my life no longer matters i don't need to live any more life because you my daughter are the one who's the most important and um it's a very powerful powerful little moment thank you yeah I, and, and you need it to, to balance off the the comedy yeah. you know so that you actually still care about these people exactly uh I, I will say that although this came very easily to Susan and, and, and I to write this about the mother daughter part, neither of us had mothers like Luxana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we really didn't. Uh, so it didn't come from personal experience, but um, you know, observations of other other mother daughter relationships, and uh, so that was that was it. Just flowed out of us to to write that part of it. I know as a, as a kid growing up watching the show, I just, I never thought I would meet anyone like Luxana Troy. And <laughs> as time has gone on, I have. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, you know, a certain type of person. Let's yes, say. <laughs> they are out there. Yeah, yeah. for better or worse. For and better or for worse. Yes. Yeah. But absolutely fun to write for, That's that's for sure. Were you able to visit the set for uh, the filming of this episode? Oh yeah, all seven days. Wow, amazing! That uh, that was again. That was Gene, Gene's with Gene's permission. Because first of all, aside from the fact that they don't want writers on the set, uh, Susan was supposed to be working in Gene's office. Yeah. So for her to be gone for seven days, she absolutely needed his permission. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and some days, of course, were on the lot. Most days, but we did go to Huntington Gardens, as, as you mentioned. So uh, there was a day where we were really away, but as long as she was on the lot, she was. If there was some emergency, she could be back in the office in no time. And then Jane came to the set as well, especially for Wesley's promotion. Yeah, uh, according to uh, some trivia uh, for this episode, uh, Colin Powell also visited the set uh, during. Well, this I time. have a story about that. Yeah. Please. So. Uh, a few years before this episode, there was one of many. Writers Guild strikes. And I was new in the Writers Guild and I was on a picket line and I met other writers. And there was one writer in particular that we became friends and I knew he was a big Star Trek fan. So I said, listen, you know, my episodes in production, do you want to come to the set and see the set? He said, oh, yeah. So uh, the day he came, we walked over and they were not using the bridge set. Uh, so it was easy to go on that stage and show them everything, but it was all lit up. And it's a set if they're not using it. And I said, honestly, I have no idea why it's lit, but you're going to get some great pictures. So he's out in the captain's chair. He got his picture taken. I found out later that one hour after I was there with him was Colin Powell's visit to the... <laughs> and that's why it was all lit up for him. There you go. Yeah. But I didn't know about that for quite a while after. Too bad we didn't hang around for an hour. I would have, would have met him. 
Patrick Stewart's having fun here. Yes, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, by this point in Star Trek, the the series had become quite a phenomenon. Uh, you know, in the first season of the show, it was a little bit in doubt how the next generation would be received by people. But by now, sure. you were getting people like Colin Powell. You were getting people like Stephen Hawking. You were getting a uh, number of people coming to visit the set just because they wanted to to see how it was all made and sit in the captain's chair. I would say, and I think we'd probably all agree, it, season one, scripts weren't that great. They were okay. Some were better than others. Season two was a little better, but season three, it really kicked in. Yeah. I attribute to Michael Pillar. Uh, You know, and then the uniforms changed, the lighting changed, it looked different. Uh, So from season three on, they were... They were they hit their stride. They were really were. It, really it were. became even better than it was the first two years. Yeah. <laughs> love that little wink clocks on a gifts break. <laughs> so okay, yourself love, in the captain's chair. We we loved writing all that, including yeah. the uh under his breath orb nine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this scene was also very important to it. Yeah. To us to write. And uh, I still get a, I don't think it's going to happen right now, but I still get a little weepy when I see this scene, you know. Um, unfortunately, because of uh, Future Imperfect, uh, we got to see him in his uniform before we got to see him in his uniform in, in our show. But uh, mm-hmm. I still feel like we're the one who put him in the uniform. Is that all? But I love the way this whole setup is where you're not quite sure what Picard's getting at. Mm-hmm. Wesley definitely isn't sure. And it's it's very, very well done here. And yeah. you know, even just like both of their performances are fantastic. I mean, you look at Patrick Stewart and uh, or uh, Picard and Wesley's dynamic over the show it really does become a father and son relationship and absolutely it's it's moments like this that help to solidify that i think and especially season one it's it's a little more distant it's a little more you know he's reserved but picard it's his arc for the whole show really is about being able to open up a little more to people yes. and it's, it's moments like this which really helped uh, cement that i i totally agree we were just lucky to get to do it you know really and um you know it did it did have some rewriting i would say they improved it even over what what we did was close to what you see, but they made it even better. Yeah. And I'm just glad he gets out of that uniform. I mean, it's, right. <laughs> it's uh, you and, know, it's the, the gray uniform was, it looks nice from the front, but if you turn it around, you're like, wait, well, what, it's what are those little the flaps there? I don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I don't know what was going on. Did not, didn't anybody notice that? But it <laughs> wasn't, you know. I thought that was the weirdest thing. Yeah. But this is the moment when he's in his uniform for the Yeah. And and of course everyone's on the bridge. Especially but, mom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. One of the few moments actually I think that that side chair gets utilized. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and to have everybody everybody yeah. in place. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Um It's a good chat. It's yeah, good chat. it really it really is. You know. For me, Wesley is always this guy in this in this uniform right here. That's my mental image of him. I, uh, I know Wesley always gets a lot of shit, but I always I always love that character. Yeah. I think he's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, he he was an integral part of the show, and, and yeah, I know. Yeah, there's Melinda's credit and Mon Moore. Um, 
It was a great time. It was a great time just to be, uh, I felt very privileged. Uh, it was just a great, a great time. I remember sitting in the office one day during season two, and I think it might have been after one of Gene's birthdays, but they were talking about Guinan and how, you know, she wasn't cast yet, but how this character was going to be introduced. And uh, Maurice, the producer, said, uh, yeah, we're talking to Whoopi Goldberg. And I thought he was joking. Yeah. <laughs> like, talking to Whoopi Goldberg? That makes no sense at all. Well, he wasn't joking. <laughs> but I didn't know it that day. That's amazing. Um, well, Fred, I mean, this episode, you had the game later on. Was there any other uh, times we were able to go in and pitch for, for Star Trek? Or, uh... Uh, Susan and I continue to pitch. Uh, uh, we, we pitched a story to Michael Peller uh, that, again... It got done later, so if this sounds old hat, it wasn't when we went in. <laughs> I said, all right, we open on the Enterprise, and it blows up. And the story moves backward from there. Mm. And Michael said, like the musical Merrily We Roll Along, which <laughs> is a flat eye musical that goes backward. And I said, yeah, that's exactly where I got the idea. Yeah. Said, well, we're not going to do that. And then, of course, <laughs> on point. Exactly that. But it was years later. What what can I say? You know. Yeah. I, I don't think they even had a memory that we were in with that with that idea. We pitched uh again before they did it, we pitched uh Wild Wild West. Yeah. We'll never do that. We'll never do that. <laughs> of course. They did. But you know, these things happen. You you forgive them things like that. But uh we did pitch for uh I, I pitched on my own for uh, Deep Space Nine and for Voyager. Yeah. So I did pitch an idea for Deep Space Nine. And although he was, again, he wasn't taking pitches anymore, Iris Stephen Bear knew me from, you know, when I was hanging around. And he said, well, pitch to me. So I pitched an idea, which he liked a lot. And I thought it was going to get done. But then the character of Jax left the show and my idea was really for her. I yeah. think it could have been rewritten. A lot of things get talked about and don't happen. And you're lucky for the things that, that do. Amazing. Well, uh, Fred, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been fantastic. So, Fred, I, I will quickly plug that yeah, you can be found on uh, fredbronson.com. Uh, also, uh, Fred Bronson on Twitter, um, where you can, I believe your links to all your books are also available on your website, which are fantastic and uh, strongly recommend people find those and check them out. So uh, for listeners out there, thank you very much for being here. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter or at Inglorious Trek Experts on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, we'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mark Rivera as well as Bill Ritter and everyone at Electric Entertainment, including producer Natalie Muscali and uh, executive producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. So if you liked our show, please uh, subscribe and rate us five stars. And uh, until next time, we will say thank you very much for being here. And the briefing room is now closed. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.